This is Unbounded, a podcast from Cross Boundary about business leaders overcoming extraordinary challenges in frontier markets. Each episode, we speak to a different entrepreneur, investor, or partner about how they are building businesses and markets that are often overlooked. My name is Tom Flahive, and I'm a partner at Cross Boundary. Today on Unbounded, we're going to be talking about the challenges and opportunities that global frontier markets offer to U.S. capital. And that's chiefly going to be from the lens of a global investment management firm, Brown Advisory. Brown manages approximately $130 billion in client assets, and sustainable investing solutions are one of the core focus areas for Brown Advisory. I believe they manage about $35 billion of client assets, which are specifically focused on sustainable or valued-aligned objectives. Uh, I'm joined by Lisa Abraham. Uh, she's an ESG research analyst at Brown. She's leading the integration of their ESG research across their sustainable fixed income strategies, and most recently has been helping to launch the global fixed income platform. Uh, Lisa began her career at Invest Microfinance Fund and later worked at the Millennium Challenge Corporation, assessing and reporting on the ESG impacts of U.S. government investments in frontier markets. Lisa, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. So I, I, I want to get right into kind of the nuances of investing in frontier markets. You know, it's operating at this nexus between development and private investment strategies. Some people listening may may not have seen this before, but in a lot of markets that cross-boundary works in, uh, oftentimes uh, foreign aid flows are actually larger than total foreign direct investment in the entire economy. And so different than the U.S. market, you have significant actors coming from the development community, the likes of USAID or the IFC or the MCC where you used to work. So Lisa, I guess my first question is, is Tell us a bit about yourself and your time at MCC and, and how that now applies to your role working with, with investors at Brown Advisory. Yeah. So at MCC, I worked on our monitoring and evaluation team. So essentially, I was responsible for assessing the effectiveness of U.S. government funded projects in frontier markets. So looking at how investments in healthcare training and infrastructure led to improved health outcomes, for instance. And through this work, I, I really saw the importance of public and private sector collaboration. Government funding alone is, is not enough, but actually there's a tremendous opportunity for the private sector to capitalize on the growth opportunity in these countries. And so I really wanted to find a way to leverage the capital markets to spur even greater investment in these countries which was really brought me on to the concept of sustainable investing in the first place. And the thing that I, I love about where I am now uh, in fixed income specifically is that it's not just about investing in companies. We have the ability to invest in many different types of entities, allowing us to address many key environmental and social challenges, multiple angles. And one of the areas that I've been focused on recently is developing our ESG framework for assessing sovereign bonds. Um, you want to find countries that will allocate their resources effectively, looking at indicators of corruption. Um, you want to find countries that invest in their people, um, which is a key pillar for, for economic growth. And you want to find countries that have the foundations in place to ensure the long-term success of your project or investment. So finding countries that can take 
your financial contribution and use it to spur greater growth over time. Yeah, I think it's interesting thinking about how you look at it from the lens of working at key development stakeholder like MCC and, and now Brown as, as a private investor. There's so much overlap when you're looking at these markets. Are there any differences? I would imagine at MCC, sometimes you're also looking at markets that you can do the most impact. So you want to almost start from the market to have the most to improve. Uh, whereas the lens of Brown, you're looking certainly from an ESG angle, but also looking for the strongest investment opportunities. What kind of differences do you see now that you wear a different hat? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I think our our sustainable investing strategies here at Brown Advisory, we equal weight performance and impact. And one of the things with fixed income in particular is a lot of companies and countries have to issue debt in order to finance a transition to become more sustainable, either through improving their environmental sustainability or addressing social challenges. And so they come to the public markets and issue the debt, and we have the ability to finance that transition more directly than you can in some of the other um, asset classes. So we definitely try to look at where a particular country or company is and where they're going. It's not just about how they're performing on ESG metrics today, but do we see a positive trajectory um, in the future and can we be part of that? So, you know, at least as, as you're thinking about sustainable investment, as it becomes more and more of an investor priority for, for you, your clients, there is a strong alignment between that and EM and frontier market investing in general. So, so how is Brown thinking about ESG when, when you're making these investments? Yeah, so to back it up a bit, I can give a, a, an overview of how we think about sustainable investing at Brown Advisory. We do have several um, sustainable investment strategies across public equities and fixed income. And um, focused on the fixed income piece, our overarching approach um, is fairly similar. And we really view ESG from two lenses, um, the risks and the opportunities. So when looking at a company on the risk side, we'll look at factors such as human capital or supply chain resiliency. So factors that we believe may lead to operational disruptions or unforeseen expenditures. And then on the opportunity side, we look at how companies are proactively positioning themselves to be more resilient over the long term. And here we'll look at the product and service mix and how they're solving for environmental and social challenges allowing them to offer a compelling value proposition to customers or consumers. And then we'll also look at the operational footprint, how they might be reducing energy or water use, which allows them to improve their energy or their operational efficiency and, and cut costs that way. And it's this opportunity piece where, where I think we can, as investors, play a very important role in emerging and frontier markets. I mean, more than 86% of the world population lives in an emerging market, um, making up over 58% of GDP. And that purchasing power will only continue to grow over time as, as they further develop. And so we're looking at how companies are factoring this into their longer term strategies and tapping into these largely underserved markets. So what are some examples? What are some public equities or fixed income strategies that you're looking at? Yeah, so a name that we've held in our fixed income strategies is Takeda Pharmaceutical, which is a Japan-based pharmaceutical company with a strong focus on expanding access to medicine in emerging markets. And, and one of its key focus areas is on non-communicable diseases, which currently accounts for 80% of the global burden of disease. 
And as we see a rising middle class in emerging and frontier markets, two things are happening. One, uh, they're living longer as basic health care and standards of living improve, which means that infectious diseases will continue to play less of a threat and non-communicable diseases will become more common. And then the second thing that's happening is they'll have greater income and, and a greater ability to pay for, for health care. So today, while emerging markets comprise uh, 13% of Takeda's revenues, they expect to more than double this by 2030. And then the last um, example that I mentioned is, is Bank Rakyat in Indonesia, which is the market leader in providing access to finance for micro, small, and medium enterprises. Um, it has 53% market share of the micro lending segment in Indonesia, um, which we see as a key competitive advantage. And it's been able to do this um, by offering very attractive interest rates, which it's been able to keep low by taking a community-based approach that has allowed it to also keep it, it, its non-performing loans low. So these are, are just a handful of examples, I think. Today, no matter what, where the company is domiciled, emerging and frontier markets are going to continue to make up a larger portion of their business. So it's important for, for companies to be thinking strategically. I'm interested on kind of the specific examples that you listed. Is that list getting longer and longer? Are you finding more and more companies that achieve both EM exposure and advance the ESG goals? Is it is it a search to find companies that, that hit all of your goals or... Or do you really have a large mass that you're picking from um, and it's just a growing list as you go? Yeah, so I think right now, Brown Advisory is an, an exciting time as we're expanding our, our global strategy. So we'll be launching a global fixed income strategy and an international equity strategy. So our EM exposure will continue to go up. Um, I think one of the big challenges with investing in EM is the lack of data and disclosure. Um, they just aren't used to having the same level of transparency. But that's also why engaging with company management teams is, is a very important part of our process. And, and we do that whenever we can. Um, mm -hmm. And that's a way for us to go out in the market and let them know what we as investors are looking for. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to continue to increase the level of data there, which will enhance our due diligence process over time. Yeah, so with that, I'd really like to focus in on, on fixed income a bit more and, and thinking about how EM Frontier compares to developed markets, especially when it comes to, to sovereign risk. As Brown and his clients look uh, at investments globally more and more and look at fixed income, what, what opportunities, what risks, what nuances did you think about when launching Brown's global fixed income strategy? Applying an ESG lens to sovereign analysis is still rather nascent, and that was one of the biggest differences between our U.S.-based fixed income strategies and the launch of our, our global fixed income strategy is that we would have a lot more exposure to, to sovereign bonds. Um, in our U.S.-based strategies, we had previously invested in supranationals like IFC or World Bank and African Development Bank, which directly helped to finance economic development projects in emerging and frontier markets, but directly investing in national governments other than U.S. Treasuries was, was still rather new for us. We've built out our, our sovereign ESG framework over, over the last several months. And I think it's helpful to kind of 
see how it compares and contrasts to how we th- think about ESG for companies, just because that's the area where ESG is much more established. So we're thinking about a lot of the same factors like human capital. It's critical to a company's ability to innovate and to attract and retain talent, just as it is critical to a country's ability to create economic opportunity and growth. So whereas we may look at training and development programs, diversity, equity, and inclusion on, at the company level, for a sovereign, we're looking at health and education outcomes, metrics of inequality, et cetera. Climate change is also an issue that will disrupt us all. It'll require the restructuring of business models, just as it will the restructuring of entire economies. And then governance, this is, this is always a tricky one, is to assess the governance of, of a government. But here it really comes down to assessing how leadership, whether that be a company management team or a group of elected government officials, are meeting the needs and, and being held accountable um, by its various stakeholders. And looking at all of these factors from a macro level can also help us understand market and business dynamics such as demographic changes, climate change, regulatory environment, which can influence our, our corporate bonds and, and public equities as well. Yeah. So, so Lisa, I mean, I, as you know, as we see all the time, you know, many developing economies score poorly on ESG ratings, often because of, of weak governance, but, but also because of environmental and social issues. And it's a challenge, right? Because we believe that unlocking capital in these markets in many sectors has real ways of advancing ESG goals. And, and oftentimes when, when we think about it, it's kind of thinking about this anecdote of a, of a track coach at tryouts watching two sprinters and they, they run 100 meters and they finish in the exact same amount of time and one has perfect form and one has terrible form. And the coach goes through the assistant coach and he says, let's take the guy with the terrible form. And the assistant coach has no idea why you would do that. The other guy has perfect form. And it's because the coach says, I can coach him. Think if he has, if he improves how fast he could run. And, and I sometimes think about that as it comes to working uh, with developing economies. You know, are, are you motivated to go and work with the ones that actually align best with the ESG ratings uh, as they're set? Um, because notionally, that will advance ESG goals the most. Or do you actually go where the ESG scores are, are the lowest because they have so much room to improve. How, how have you thought about that as, try, as you try to accomplish the very challenging task of, of creating a, kind of a global ESG framework? That is an excellent question and one we've thought about a lot. Um, it was a bias that we immediately recognized when we were f- first building out our, our own ESG framework and, and why we chose to use a combination of quantitative and qualitative analysis. If you just look at the ESG data from a purely quantitative standpoint, as you point out, on an absolute basis, it will penalize emerging and frontier markets. Um, the data also tends to lag, which, which can be another challenge. So you really have to dig in to understand what the data is telling you, um, look at how the data is trending, and then overlay that with qualitative analysis of recent policy developments and, and current events. And by doing this, we believe that we can uncover opportunities we may otherwise have missed. So identifying opportunities of improving ESG metrics that may lead to tightening credit spreads over time. Um, I would use Indonesia as an example here. It's a, it's a country that we've been um, thinking a lot about uh, recently. 
Um, and Indonesia performs slightly below average on an absolute basis when you when you look at our, our own internal quantitative scoring. But when you dive into the data a bit deeper, we see positive momentum in a number of key areas. So their governance indicators have steadily improved over the last decade, um, coupled with positive momentum on economic opportunity, which we measure through employment levels, poverty reduction, and ease of doing business. And a strong focus on expanding access to education in recent years is an important step in positioning them to capitalize on the economic opportunity, which we believe may lead to greater economic growth prospects over time. On the environmental side, this is where it can get particularly tricky in emerging markets, especially as it relates to climate transition risk. While all countries will need to transition towards lower carbon economies, we recognize the need to balance that with energy security considerations and financial resource constraints. Indonesia is a major exporter and consumer of coal. Um, it makes up 60% of their electricity generation. So while its current climate targets do not align with where we really need to be to stay under a 1.5 degree, we do know recent announcements to phase out coal power um, and to achieve carbon neutrality by, by 2060. And these are positive steps in the right direction. By lending to a country like Indonesia, we believe we can have greater bang for your buck and help support their investments in education and in their transition away from coal and, and towards cleaner energy. And this is a topic that we've talked a lot about with your team at Cross Boundary as well on how we can perhaps look past traditional data points and, and, and better understand um, the risks and opportunities in emerging and, and frontier market sovereigns. Lisa, in the past, you've mentioned to me labeled bonds. It's a term that I, that I, I learned from you. Uh, I'd be very interested for you to tell me, our listeners, more about it and how it can help overcome some of the challenges that you and I have just been speaking about. Yes, absolutely. And labeled bonds. So um, this is the term that we use for green, social, or sustainability bonds. So that they're bonds that are issued to finance specific environmental and or social projects. In total, the, the labeled bond market um, surpassed $3 trillion last year, which sounds large, but it still makes up a very small portion of the overall fixed income market. But it's really gaining momentum among companies and sovereigns. And I think it could be a really compelling tool for emerging and frontier market countries and companies to increase access to capital and, and attract a, a, a new investor base. So Mexico, for instance, um, recently partnered with the UNDP to develop a framework for issuing the first sovereign SDG bond last year, which offers greater budget transparency. And what it does is it allows investors to direct capital directly towards environmental or social projects that are key to achieving critical to long-term economic growth. We know that addressing these major issues like climate change or inequality are going to require significant capital. So the labeled bond market is really an excellent way to scale investment in, in these key areas. And I think also address some of the issues that, that you mentioned on um, lack of data and transparency, um, because uh, kind of a, a cornerstone piece of the labeled bond market is that you have to um, report on the use of proceeds um, and earmark them towards specific projects, which can give investors uh, a little bit more confidence that, that their dollars are going towards those projects that they think will be really key to the long-term success of, of that country or, or company. Do you think uh, the future of ESG 
reporting and really the ratings behind it are going to be driven ad hoc by each investor? Are they going to be the special sauce of investment firms like Brown Advisory? Or do you see the whole market moving to a more aligned definition of how you account for ESG? It's an excellent question. And and I think one that we are actively following here. I think every day there's a new ESG data provider that's coming out. Um, it's the big four that are, 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 are paying attention to ESG, but it's also the, the credit rating agencies like uh, Fitch, Moody's, S&P. They all have their own um, ESG ratings now. And I, I think what we always come back to is that Sustainable investing as an investment philosophy requires you to take on your own understanding of ESG metrics. You can't just take um, one rating at face value. You really need to understand what's driving that rating. So if you don't do your own due diligence on the ESG risks and the opportunities, um, Mm -hmm. then its ability to lead you to improved investment outcomes is harder to achieve. So I think what we've seen is, you know, two of the biggest ESG ratings providers out there are Sustainalytics and MSCI. And if mm. you compare their scoring methodologies and the ratings for the same companies, you'll see rather wide dispersion in one rating may, uh, one company be, may be rated at the top of MSCI's list and, and the bottom of Sustainalytics. And that really just comes down to um, the methodology. So I think for Brown Advisory, at least, we'll, we'll continue to have our own uh, ESG research due diligence in-house. But I do certainly think that people are paying more attention to this. And I think naturally that will lead to to some sort of convergence. So Lisa, thanks for your time today. Um, just one final question, kind of as you look forward to trends uh, on ESG investing and, and how those trends will apply both domestically and then you know, throughout the globe and in frontier markets, uh, any any interesting trends that you you have your eye on? Yeah, I I mean, I think what we talked about a little bit with the labeled bond market is something that we see a lot of growth potential there. Um, We know uh, that addressing these major issues like climate change and inequality are are going to require significant capital. And um, we really view uh, the fixed income markets as an excellent way to to finance those investments. And and we really want to, to be a part of that. Yeah, and I would say what I'm excited about as I look forward uh, is there is a real groundswell of interest in the U.S. Uh, in investment, whether it's social, you call it social impact investment or sustainable investment or ESG investing. But there is a groundswell uh, typically coming from the younger generation uh, to invest not just for financial return and maximizing shareholder value, but also for the improvements of social environmental governance factors. Uh, and with Cross Boundary, so much of our work is uh, in global frontier markets. And, and what I'm interested in is to see how much of that excitement that we're seeing in the U.S. market, how it comes to be applied to unlocking capital in many markets where that capital could achieve significant development outcomes. And then uh, over time, also seeing a sharing of capital back and forth and seeing business models and investors uh, in many of the markets where Cross Boundary already has an office uh, looking to engage in many sustainable high growth sectors uh, in the U.S. as well. <laughs>